Hello, welcome to another episode of Sweet Valley Online, where evil triplets come together to snark Sweet Valley twins and explore the darkness that lurks just beneath the surface of Sweet Valley. We recap three Sweet Valley Twins books each month. You can find all our recaps and previous podcast episodes at sweetvalley.online. We are also on Facebook at facebook.com slash sweetvalleyonline and on Tumblr at sweetvalleyonline.tumblr.com. Our music is provided by Stuart Taylor of Legacy Breakfast. You can contact him at taylorstuart602 at gmail.com if you want to commission your own music. All of this information will be in the show notes. I'm Wing. I'm reading everything for the first time. And at this point, I only hate about half of what we read. Help me. Please send help. Send help immediately. I'm here with my Nazi evil triplets, Dove and Raven. And no, seriously, I need help. Send help now. Please send a team to save me. I'm Dove, and I'm officially sick of how many bloody new girls there are at Sweet Valley Middle School. We're like three months in, and there's been about 57 of them. Also, don't send help for Wing. I'm Raven. I am rather new to Sweet Valley, although I'm reading them a bit more voraciously than I thought I would at first. Seriously, I can't get enough of Jessica and her madcap schemes. And I'm also not a real bird. This month, we recapped number 21, Left Behind, number 22, Out of Place, and number 23, Claim to Fame. In Left Behind, Sarah Thomas, Elizabeth's random BFF of the book, had a great relationship with her father, right up until he started bringing his new girlfriend, and then fiancé, Annie, around. Sarah feels ignored, and unloved, and lonely. When her dad goes out of town for work, leaving Annie to take care of Sarah, Annie immediately fucks right off to, quote, take care of her younger sister who is very ill, leaving Sarah literally on her own. She's terrified to stay alone at night, and now she's completely taking care of herself. She's too scared to say anything because Annie has put the fear of God into her somehow. It's never really clear why she's so terrified of telling anyone, considering how much she dislikes Annie and how scared she is of staying home alone. Can Elizabeth figure out her secret and save the day? Because Elizabeth must put her nose into everyone's business. I bet you know she can. Hot on the heels of Sarah Thomas's issues comes Ginny Lou Culpepper. She's from the country and she says, hey, y'all and yee-haw. Naturally, Ellen Reitman... I am never going to say her surname correctly, so don't even ask. Hates Ginny Lou for her provincial ways and rounds up a gang of unnamed bitches to bully the shit out of this little redneck. Naturally, Elizabeth steps in and saves the day by learning about Ginny Lou's inner beauty and the fact that she can whittle dolls like uh, rural people can and shit like that. And, you know... Everything sorts itself out. I mean, you lot have mostly read The New Girl or Haunted House or any of the other books where there's a new girl who gets picked on for being new and it all comes right. So you know how this ends. Also, there's a horse. I like also there's a horse. That's good. (laughs) That's a possible title for the uh, the podcast. I will explain myself more when we talk about it, but oh, oh sorry. So you weren't finished, and that was the, that was the end of the podcast for you, then. Oh, n- <laughs> shut up! <laughs> I did 
also there's a horse kind of feels like the end of his participation. <laughs> also, there's a horse. Mic drop, I'm out. <laughs> See y'all bitches next month. I have a horse fact. This is especially for you, uh, Wing. A blue whale can do a fart bubble so large you can fit a horse in it. <laughs> that is now something everybody knows. Excellent. Yeah, that's that's the kind of thing people tune into a Sweet Valley podcast for. Claim to Fame discusses Sweet Valley Middle School's celebrations to chronicle 25 years of gross incompetence and child endangerment by burying the time capsule on the school grounds, filled with historically important tat from 25 years previous. Why? Because fuck reasons, that's why. They open a contest to the school in which the student body in teams of four provide three bespoke trinkets for the capsule, proving that they're not only stupid, but they're also cheap. The winners will also be immortalised by having their picture taken and placed underground, ensuring that they will forever be remembered by whatever alien race opens the pod once the world has been decimated by the great galactic conflict of 3056. Jessica and the unicorn saw some boring tat, as do Elizabeth and the Valpals, her band of perky peripherals. George Henkel, Elizabeth's peripheral du jour, has a wheelchair-bound estranged father, who Liz discovers was once a Sweet Valley High School super-athlete, and uses the pretext of getting George and his dad back together again to lay her grubby fingers on Daddy Henkel's championship-winning signed football in order to secure the time capsule contest win. Does it work? Of course it does. Sweet Valley for the fucking win. Liz and the Valpals win the contest, George and his father are reconciled once more, and the world turns and turns, ever drifting towards destruction under an iron-heeled jackboot of intergalactic oppression. I, for one, welcome our approaching alien overlords. Let's go talk about Left Behind. I really like this book. But then again, I've been saying that for for weeks, which is probably why you didn't enjoy it so much, because I built it up. I'm sorry. That's a bar pretty high. Uh, also, you're definitely predisposed to like this book, for reasons that we've touched on in earlier episodes, but we'll talk about here, too, I'm sure. The biggest problem with me is that I really did enjoy the A-plot, as long as I can kind of get past the fact that Annie somehow terrifies Sarah into not telling anyone, which doesn't make any sense to me. The B-plot is both boring, and you can see what's actually happening a mile away, so you're just sitting there waiting for Jessica to catch up, too. And if I didn't put it in the summary, the B-plot is basically that... Janet has asked Jessica to help her plan the next big unicorn party, and she's only done it because she has a crush on Steven. That is literally the most obvious thing in a Sweet Valley book that I've read yet, and Jessica has no idea for probably three quarters of the book. Yeah, I've actually forgotten about the B-plot. Yeah, this shows how much of an uh, impression it made on me. I just want to put a theory out there. Like, do you remember in book one? Maybe you guys don't, but all of this is ingrained on my brain. And I don't know my eight times table, so go figure. But in the very first book, I think it was, someone was actually thrown out of the unicorns, a girl called Roberta Manning, for dating a high school boy. And it was Stephen. Now, has anyone ever seen Roberta Manning ever again? No. I think Janet didn't just kick her out. I think she killed her. I mean, I know we're not supposed to be talking about Bleak Valley yet, but the theory is right there. I don't know if that's actually a Bleak Valley theory, because we definitely think that Lila has people taken care of when she gets cross with them. I can see Janet doing the same thing. They're cousins, right? 
Yes. And I had forgotten about that plot point, but it does fit in nicely that Janet has actually had this crush for a long time. It doesn't really come out of the blue in this book. Oh, I, mean, I like that. Uh, oh, I've just thought of, and in the, the haunted house, Janet is outside in her back garden when she catches Nora McCandy casting a spell, in finger quotes, on her cat. What is she doing out there? She's probably burying the body. So you think that she's buried the body in the garden of the haunted house to throw shade on Marvellous Marvin? No, she lives next door to Nora. Oh, does she actually live next door to Nora? Yeah. Oh. It was in the third book. Oh, okay. I say I really like the idea that she buried it in the backyard of the haunted house and was moving back into her yard to go inside when she saw what was happening. Surely she wouldn't bury the body on her own doorstep. You're forgetting how thick the unicorns are, but actually wings right. She would totally do that and then misdirect everyone. Yeah, she was casting a spell on my cat. That's that's why I was out there. I was not burying the body of Roberta Manning. I was looking for my cat. That's what I, I was looking for my cat and the witch cast a spell and ooh, scary. Uh, I mean, I although I am one to embrace the darkness... Uh, I I I can certainly see this is not so much a, a 12-year-old killing a, another 12-year-old and managing to cover it up, even though we know the adults in Sweet Valley are all massively incompetent. I think you'll find that Janet is 13, maybe even 14. Oh, well, well, there we go. Totally able to do it now. So how old was this, what's her name, Roberta Manning? Same age. So maybe that's why we don't, because we don't see Janet very often. When you're not in the unicorns, we don't see anyone other than the sixth graders, really. I can't think of another eighth grader that we see that isn't in the unicorns other than, say, Stephen. Is Stephen in high school? Stephen's in high school, so he's at the next school up. Okay. Look. Because I, I, I can I can thoroughly see Janet getting rid of Roberta Manning just because she fancied Stephen. Kicking her out of the unicorns straight away and then the massive ostracization. Raven, yes. stop bursting our murderous bubble <laughs> with your logic. Yeah, sorry, I, I don't like to be the voice of, of sweetness and light, but uh, it appears I've taken that role in this podcast. Apologise, listeners, if that's not what you're used to. I remember Wing telling me that the Gossip Girl books got re-released with a serial killer slant, so Blair and Serena are running around with knives, stabbing everyone. It's not as good as it sounds. Um, but yeah, this this is what me and Wing are doing now. We are imagining all of the murders. It explains a lot, like the way that characters will pop up and then never be seen again. Like, for exa- example, Ginny Lou Culpepper, the protagonist of my book, never seen again. You can take the girls out of point horror, but you can't take the point horror out of the girls. Murders are for everyone. <laughs> and also... This completely salvages the B-plot for me, so I'm going to cling to this theory with everything I have. So I really wanted to like this book because Dove loves it so much. Maybe that's why they're like, no, we can't have the party at our house, especially not in the garden over there by the, by the vegetable patch. Oh my god, you, you're actually onto something there. Yeah, don't dig there. Don't dig there. No, don't plant <laughs> flowers there. Bet you got a cold sweat when the time capsule was announced. She was like, well, I've got to bury things. No. <laughs> Who's good at burying things? Huh, Janet seems to be perking up a little bit over there. <laughs> yeah, she's got a very own spade with a unicorn engraving on it. She would too. That's delightful. Right, uh, should should we talk about what we actually read rather than what we thought we read? What we wanted to read. So yeah, like I said, I did enjoy the A-plot except for the weird thing about her not wanting to turn Annie in because it's kind of heartbreaking The premise of why Sarah is hanging out with Elizabeth this book is that they're doing a history project together with Elizabeth's 
alleged best friend, Amy, who really kind of gets bumped to the side when anyone else ever appears. But at least she gets to come into books. Julie just disappears whenever there's a best friend of the book. So Amy's kind of a step up there. Anyway, they're doing a history project together. Sarah keeps hiding the problem she's having with Annie and kind of running straight home and not hanging out. And it's it's very weird. She doesn't want to go home at night, though, when, it, when Annie's going to be there. So it's all very weird back and forth. But anyway, Sarah's dad leaves town. He decides that instead of bringing her aunt in to stay with her, which is what normally happens, he wants Annie to take care of her because they'll all be living together soon enough since Annie's his fiance. And Sarah doesn't say that this is a bad idea, which is understandable. This part is understandable. She doesn't feel as close to her dad. She feels very abandoned by him, even when he's there. And she doesn't really want to shake the boat there. because She already feels like he'll probably choose Annie over her. So that part, her not saying anything, seems very understandable and believable. It's the part where the first night Annie fucks right off out of town and never comes back the whole week. That doesn't make any sense to me, that she doesn't tell someone something. She's terrified. How could she not even just let it slip? She's not sleeping. She visibly shows up exhausted and almost sick with exhaustion and terror and yet no one figures out anything yeah you're right that it's weird that there's no reason for her to keep it quiet like i'm not sure what she could have used but annie could have sort of implied that now sarah's a grown-up come on you're 12 you're nearly in high school admittedly two years away but you know you're nearly in high school you're a big girl now when i was your age i did all this and your dad really likes this about me because i'm a strong independent woman and don't you want to be the same but basically she just goes late as bitches and um sarah just obligingly covers for her when she has no reason to but um on the other side of this, I read this when I was often left by myself, um, not much older than Sarah. So I sort of identify with her for all the uh, freak out, although she seemed to be freaked out by herself in the daylight, which um, I wasn't. It was like the minute the light, it went dark. I'm like, right, I'm going to die. There's a serial killer in my wardrobe. And that makes complete sense that her terror over being alone, even if the daylight part was I had to suspend my disbelief on that a little bit. But her fear over this is really compelling. And that's the part that I enjoyed about the A-plot, is that she is in this heartbreaking situation that it re- you really do feel for her. I just don't understand why she didn't tell anyone. From my point of view, I mean, I, I enjoyed the A-plot quite a lot in this book. The talk of her not admitting straight away, I can sort of see that. If the relationship between her father and Annie had been growing to a stage where Annie's now about to move in, then I can imagine anything that she said about Annie in the negative in the past being sort of brushed aside to a certain extent. If not brushed aside, but at least it looking like it was being brushed aside by her father, who's doing the best in his eyes to get a family unit together. So when... Annie is very flippant. I, I seem to remember, doesn't she say that your dad doesn't want to hear this? He's in a very important meeting or something like that. So what I took away from it was that she was not telling anyone because she didn't want to in- interrupt her father's important business meetings. And while that's a flimsy excuse, I still think it's a believable excuse for a 12-year-old. I could see that, especially for that first night, because 
uh, Annie does give the impression that she's just going to be gone maybe overnight at most to take care of her sister. But as it drags on and on, and as Sarah's aunt keeps calling and pushing her for what's wrong, it just seems weird to me that she doesn't break down and say something. But I do think you're right. Uh, Annie phrasing it in a way that your dad's very busy, you'll ruin this opportunity for him. That does make sense at least the first day or two. I just don't buy that it makes sense the whole time. I've actually just thought of something with Raven talking, which is that um, there was a part in the book where Sarah's aunt kept pushing for Sarah to come live with her. So perhaps if they'd have emphasized that, like that Sarah's fear was that if she can't get along with Annie, i.e. go along with, I've got to go, um, she'd be taken away from her dad. And while she loves her aunt, she wants to live with her dad. If they'd have just pushed that a bit harder, it probably would have worked. And we would have all remembered that exchange rather than it just being a throwaway line in the very end of the book. Yeah, that is actually very fair. Yeah, I will say as well, you are quite correct, Wing, that when you say that early on, it's a good excuse. But as the things got worse and worse, there was definitely a point where she should have said, well, hang on, fuck this noise and called her father straight away. Yeah, so I, I, I concur. I, I mean, I felt really sorry for, for Sarah all the way through this. I, I really, really felt for her. It was, it was a very believable, I thought. 12-year-old's fears and reactions to everything that was going on around her. I didn't really notice the, the bit where she freaked out in the day as much as being a jarring thing that stuck out to me. It all seemed very believable up until the, the you know, when she fell down the... Did she fall down the stairs? Is that what happened? She did. That's, yeah. I was just going to take a step because this all okay. comes to head and Elizabeth starts interfering at the point that to work on this history project that's kind of driving the background of this plot, Sarah's going to go spend the night uh, with Elizabeth so they can all work on the project together. When she runs downstairs because Elizabeth and Ned are there to pick, uh, pick her up, she falls down the stairs, hurts her right foot, and hits her head really hard. And then, of course, Elizabeth runs up to ring the doorbell. There's no answer. Elizabeth sees her on the uh, ground, they break into the house, which is actually really cool because Ned is just like, no, fuck it, we gotta get in and help her. Breaks open a window and Elizabeth climbs through to let them in. And it's it's terrifying. The whole thing is really frightening and sad and you don't know. I mean, obviously you're pretty sure she's not gonna actually die because it's the Sweet Valley Twins, but the implication is that she could seriously be injured and this could have long-term repercussions. And it's kind of great in a terrible way like it's sad that this is what it took to get her help but it's very realistic that she would hide it until she literally couldn't anymore if she's going to be hiding it and then something terrible happens because she's a 12 year old being left on her own all the time it's just lucky that dove never ended up in some serious accident because there's a reason 12 year olds aren't supposed to be left home alone for days and days and weeks and weeks on end things go wrong and they can't necessarily fix them. And this was a terrible thing that happened, but a very realistic result of her being left alone when she wasn't prepared for it. And I want to say that a later book actually confirms that had she not been found that evening, she would have died. So yeah, shit gets real. And, um, 
Head injuries, treated with respect. Wing and I are not used to that. I mean, I don't know how many listeners have followed us over from Point Horror, but um, Wing and I have a trope over there called head injury, walk it off, because pretty much everyone gets twatted about the noggin repeatedly and suffers no ill effects. Um, So it was kind of refreshing to see someone take a head injury seriously. And that is, to this day in media, something that often happens. You'll get punched in the head or hit over the head with a chair or something. They'll get knocked unconscious briefly. And if it's the hero knocking the villain unconscious or knocking them down, the the idea is always, oh, well, the hero didn't kill them. Everything is fine. Except, you know, a head injury very well could kill them. Or they get knocked unconscious, wake up, and continue going about with their heroing if it's the hero knocked out. And there's never any treatment that this is really serious business and people die from head injuries. Or they have long-term repercussions and their whole personalities change and bad things can happen. So it is weird and nice to see Sweet Valley twins from the 80s and 90s dealing with head injuries in a serious, believable manner. I would never have seen that coming. One thing I would like to add about the the funnier side of being abandoned. When I was 14, um, my parents went on holiday, um, mainly without me, um, with my brother and sister, mainly because I didn't want to go. So that was my call. And they were doing their, well, we think you're old enough to, to look after yourself. And it was for a week. And they left and let me have the house. I didn't have a party which is something I realized literally as they walked through the door as they got back. I went, why didn't I have a party? But hey, um, the day they left, I spilled a, an entire bottle of vinegar in the front room and then just decided to walk away from the front room and not go back into it for a week. And when they came back, I'd used every single piece and utensil and piece of cutlery in the house. And I was resorting to cutting a slice, uh, cutting a block of cheese with a spatula. And that was what I had for my tea. So it didn't go quite as well as it could have. As someone who has lived with Raven for 13 and a half years, I absolutely believe that's what's happened. And in utter honesty, I think he's understating it. And then another example of fine parental issues. I once went on holiday myself. I was um, in between. I was actually at university at the time and it was uh, the holidays in between two of the years. And I was staying with my parents, um, living at their home. And I went on holiday for three weeks and it was to Japan randomly to to act in some plays. It was Shakespeare. Very, very entertaining. And then I came back from Japan after three weeks of being away and I was walking up our road and I could see our house. And I saw, oh, it looks like my mother's washing the net curtains. All the net curtains are down from the house. Oh, that's interesting. I arrived home to find out my entire family had moved. I could look through the door and look through the windows and there was literally no furniture, no carpets or anything. So they moved without telling me where they were going. And I was stood outside with a suitcase. Luckily, I phoned my grandmother. My mother happened to be there. And she said, oh, yes, we've moved to X. Gave us the new address. And I went round to my new home. (laughs) Your family is like the best thing ever. Troll level epic. That explains so much about how Raven is in life and on the podcast. Just explains so much. Unflappable in a, in a crisis. It's like, oh, my family don't appear to live at my house anymore. I'll find Nana. Hope she's okay. Also, the level of trolling, you're right, was just epic. So that also explains a lot about uh, Raven having grown up in that. <laughs> so, yeah, let's go from something really funny to something not funny. Obviously, uh, everything saved the day. Sarah's dad 
ends his relationship with Annie and kicks her out of their lives. Sarah does not have to go live with her aunt. She gets to stay with her dad. Everything's wrapped up with a neat bow, as always. Mostly not because of Elizabeth, which is wonderful. That summary at the back of the book makes it seem like, yeah, Elizabeth has a lot to do with all of this. No, she's very little to do with this, and it's great. Although, I suspect she takes credit for it, and this is possibly why. In Raven's book, she's such an annoying little busybody that you just want to punch her so hard until her she's just like ooze and grey matter on the ground. Is that something that's unique to my book, though? Isn't that something you want to do whenever Elizabeth pays? I was going to say, she probably does take credit, but that's the busybodiness is nothing new. Like it, it was absolutely understandable in Raven's book because she does that pretty much any time with the exception of this book where it does sound like she's going to be a busybody, but never has a chance to. She's always right there in the middle of everyone's business, saving the day. Valid point. Well made. I retract everything I said earlier. I guess we should briefly touch on the B plot, which is Mm. that, yeah, Janet has a crush on Steven. Everyone but Jessica seems to know this. She's using Jessica to get close to him. And also this great party they have is a Hawaiian luau because cultural appropriation is fun. There you go. That's pretty much the B-plot. Well, there is the uh, the book coming up, which is the unicorns go Hawaiian at some point, I believe. So that's going to be fun. Yeah, but it's just about them ordering ham and pineapple pizzas. Fantastic. I would believe that, honestly. Yeah, to be fair, by the end of the series, they're sort of like, yeah, um, Elizabeth needs a new hairbrush, to quote Raven. Yeah. That'll do. That's a plot. To be fair, she does. She does. Jessica steals it all the time anyway. Yeah, it's covered in peanut butter. I really hope she's replaced it. It's covered in blood where she's beaten to death somebody. So funny little aside about uh, pineapple and ham pizza. Uh, ostrich the other day we got hamburgers and to torment him I ordered him the new Hawaiian burger at this place where I picked ah. up the food which pretty much was called the Hawaiian burger because he took a regular burger and slapped a piece of pineapple on it and he raged over that for like an hour and it was the greatest what did he want it to do like dance up and say aloha no but he has really really angry feelings about people calling food Hawaii just because they put maybe ham and pineapple on it. That's fair. For listeners who don't know, Ostrich grew up in Hawaii and has very strong feelings about cultural appropriation of it and how people try to pass things off as Hawaiian here on the mainland. And actually, I have a very funny other Ostrich story about Hawaii. Uh, We were at a wedding a few weeks ago, and the people who had made the food had decorated the plates with hibiscus flowers Uh, so it came out on our salad course uh, and everyone else is eating their salad and talking and having fun and all of a sudden ostrich leads over and whispers to me do they not eat the flowers on the mainland so I look over and he's halfway through eating his salad with the flower cut up too so I had to break it to him that no on the mainland they don't usually eat the decorative flowers on the plates even though you can it's perfectly normal to uh, but yeah he was so shocked that on the mainland they don't eat it and I'd forgotten he was so shocked that on the mainland they don't eat the flowers, and it cracked me up because usually I remember the kind of cultural differences he grew up with having grown up on the island, 
But uh, sometimes it throws me that this many years mainland and he still doesn't quite get all of the cultural changes that uh, surprise him, but that I'm like, no, that's fine, that's normal, no one ever eats that. That's great. Surely he was like, more flowers for me. He was. (laughs) He was, actually. Did he go on a Mac salad uh, rampage? Uh, No, he's sad, which is actually a third (laughs) funny story. This is Ostrich Wyatt Story Hour. Uh, We were all in... I've got to say, that's a title for the podcast. Ostrich Hawaiian Story Hour. (laughs) Those Uh, words should never meet. Apologies, carry on. I I can't wait to tell him. He'll be so so annoyed at me, actually, (laughs) telling all these stories. Uh, So Ostrich, Dove, Raven, and I were on holiday together a couple months ago. And we found uh, an authentic Hawaiian restaurant. It's an L&L drive-in, which is big in the islands, and apparently big in Vegas, too, because there's a fairly decent-sized Hawaiian population there. And Ostrich ordered so much mac salad, which is an island staple, but the the counter, the table, just it was piled up with various containers of it. Uh, and Dove kept buying his favor by giving him her mac salad cups, and it was just the whole rest of the holiday. But I gave you mac salad, and then Ostrich would take her side in whatever was happening because of that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to point out that, you know, if you ever want to buy Ostrich's love, Max salad. That's that's how you get him. So yeah, that was uh, Ostrich Story Hour, and now let's get back to the actual books, which I liked Left Behind. Uh, I liked the A plot. I didn't really like the B plot, and it was fine. It wasn't my favorite. Uh, I like it a little bit better because I really do like some of Ravens and Dove's explanations about why she wouldn't tell, uh, even when she's terrified and getting sick from it. So I do like it a little better now, but yeah, I enjoyed it. We could uh, also give an honourable mention to the terrifying artwork on the front cover, Sarah's arm. Um, Mm. I'm fairly sure it was Shannon's Sweet Valley page that first pointed this out, but what is seen cannot be unseen. Sarah's arm is oddly long and coming out of her ribcage. It's kind of terrifying. It looks a little like a tentacle wrapped around the stuffed animal she's clinging to. Yeah, there's definitely something wrong there. It's some sort of Cthulhu-esque nightmare. <laughs> yeah, that'll fucking teach Annie. She comes back and, like, <laughs> Cthulhu's <laughs> just there. That would be amazing. Or even just Stitch. Like, Sarah's got six arms. Okay, so next up is Out of Place, which is, you know, I loved this book when it was The Haunted House. I still liked it when it was The New Girl. But by the time it was out of place, I'm just like, fucking hell, kill me now. I'm so sick of this bollocks. So, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. And when I read it, I was like, oh, well, that's kind of nice. And I like this. But at the same time, we're only 22 books in. And this is the third time that a new girl has been bullied to death. And St. Elizabeth saves the fucking day. It's just bad. Like, that's one out of seven. Every seven books, we get a new girl who's who's unliked because she's weird or different and um yeah it pissed me off a bit a lot bored you guys okay uh, i so i i i agree um i wanted to like the story but i thought being being resolutely english and not seeing a lot of the um, I, I, I want to use the word subcultures, but I don't know what the phrase is without seeing anything like that, like the redneck subculture, if you like, or the very countrified. 
Um, so, of course, you know, came across as very Jesse from Toy Story, uh, Toy Story 2. So it was something that I thought was, I thought Gene Luke Culpepper was massively caricatured. It's something I couldn't, I couldn't believe that anyone talked like that or just because the only time we see that it is as ob- object of ridicule in films and books and stuff. So the realism wasn't there. So therefore I felt no sort of connection to her story. Um, and yeah, it, it was all, it was all, all too much for, for me to sort of, t- to empathize with anything, to be honest. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt about her. I mean, I even used a gif of, um, Jesse from Toy Story, uh, jumping in the room and yelling yee-haw because she really was written very badly. I mean, I can't imagine any child as nice as Ginny Lou, who's clearly been to school before, even if it was in a much smaller school, wouldn't know that walking into a deathly silent classroom and yelling, Yoo-hoo! was bad form. Like, the idea that she'd just been raised so badly that she she doesn't realise that screaming into silence might alarm a lot of people, especially in a professional environment, such as a school or a working environment or whatever. It was just awful. And I reckon it was the same Jamie Suzanne who wrote Sophia's book, Against the Rules, because every time Ginny Lou encountered something, and literally she got her mind blown by the changing rooms in Hot Topic because there were so many mirrors. It's like a dream world, Aunt Jenny, or whatever her aunt's called. I can't even remember. Mrs. Waldron, the teacher. It was just fucking ridiculous. It was embarrassing. Like, this Jamie Suzanne has got a very spiteful view of others. You know, like, Sophia's there going, oh, gosh, am I dreaming, Mama? I'm so obviously other than these perfect white people. And Ginny, uh, Ginny Lou has exactly the same vibe. It's like she's alien. She's other. She doesn't get our ways. We're so much better than her. I am terrified for Sweet Valley to bring in an actual person of color. Because if they're doing this to the white characters, it's going to be the worst thing ever. And I'm going to literally set things on fire. Uh, I almost did with this book. I waffled between complete boredom because it's a really boring book and utter rage uh because yes she's written as a terrible stereotype she's written as if the writer is uh, a coastal person west coast probably because sweet valley but west coast or east coast that views the center of the country as flyover country i.e you only take a plane over it you never actually land there because it's so full of stupid redneck people and there is we are a big enough country that there is a vast cultural difference, even across states, individual states, much less across the entire country. And there still are recognizable Southerners and rednecks and uh, hillbillies. And sometimes those categories overlap, and sometimes they don't. But so these are cultural identities that exist and have different words and ways of talking and accents and lives but what is written here for Jenny is a complete cultural stereotype terribly written and it is very much like Jesse that's just such an apt comparison it's horrible and it's horrifying and I spent most of the book wanting to stab somebody because of it it's terrible it's it's just terrible yep completely with everything you said there i mean 
it's and I have to say everything else about this book kind of sucked as well um Ellen had a flock of harpies around her who all went around bullying Ginny they are never once named I mean is this Jamie Suzanne even paying attention to what she writes Ellen's friends are Jessica and Lila and Janet and you know they are a bunch of bitches they would totally bully the new girl for no reason at all but for some reason they're not being brought up it's like this Jamie Suzanne hasn't read anything and doesn't really know who anyone is and therefore you've kind of got that disconnect of Ellen and her friends so are they non-unicorn friends or that could never happen exactly it's just weird and the plot is that one day Ginny runs out of school because she's been shouted at because of that cliche thing of Ellen whispering bitchy shit to her. She finally says, you shut up, Ellen Reitman. And then she gets thrown out of class for shouting at Ellen for, quotes, no reason. And just generally being loud and yeehaw. So off she runs. Um, just She wants to just get away. And she winds up at Carson Stables, which is where all the horsey shit goes down. And she finds a pretty Arabian white mare, FYI. White is grey in horse terms, just saying. Um, called Snow White. Good God, that's an original name, but let's not go there. Um, and this horse belongs to Ellen. He was called Ginny Lou Culpepper. That's pretty much not the most original southern name I could have come up with myself. Yeah, actually, come to think of it, this Jamie Suzanne is just a piece of shit. Um... Anyway, she meets this horse and it's heavily pregnant and that doesn't even make sense either because Ellen bought her horse on the last page of the book that Wing recapped, which was either 10 months ago or Ellen bought a massively pregnant due to drop at any minute horse, neither of which makes sense Um, because aside from anything, they'd all be a year older and should be in seventh grade by now, if that was the case. So very confusing. Doesn't make sense. Nobody gives a shit. Um, And so Ginny bonds with this horse and then Ellen rocks up and is like, get the hell away from my horse. And Ginny says, oh, could you stop shouting and screaming because um, heavily pregnant horse getting freaked out by you screaming. And Ellen's reaction is to scream that she's going to calm her horse down any way she wants and I'm like oh yeah the screaming at it method many many fine equestrians have recommended this method you go girl it's just fucking stupid like Ellen is just being a binary villain like if she knew enough to get an an Arab like you don't put a beginner on an Arab so in theory she should know a little bit about horses and should know that you know In fact, everyone knows this. You know, don't scream around animals. They don't really understand it. It's just ridiculous. But Ellen immediately says, no, I'll scream any way I want. I'll say what, you know, I'll calm my horse down by screaming. Fuck you. And it's just because she has to be the opposite of Ginny Lou's. So the entire book's just a piece of crap. It just, oh, actually come to think of it, I fucking hate this book. Um, I will say that all the points you've made there are really good points, that the villains are really binary and stupid and very villainous and just over the top. But the, the people who are on Ginny Lou's side, side aren't exactly 
stalwart members of the community either because there's one thing that really wound me up about this book was in the craft fair i believe it was where Ginny lou is going to win over the hearts and minds of street valley by showing them her earthly countrified crafts being able to whittle dolls out of a turnip or whatever stupid thing she was doing and admittedly her her skills were beautiful and the stuff she was making was presented as really attractive and then as part of her craft display at the craft fair i think it was elizabeth's mother or elizabeth had suggested that she sing some ridiculous song it wasn't a song um her mother actually suggested like the vintage um she borrowed some antique like butter churning equipment to to make it look rustic it was elizabeth who suggested it wasn't a song it was a poem but it did have a rhythm to it so yeah so she was going to be reciting a poem um for a start it's a craft fair not a poetry fair liz i know you like words but calm it down it's not you but she was doing this thing about the coon hounds braying and and it was it was so risable and so open for mockery that to me i'm like well of course they're going to take the piss out of that all the people gathering there reading along with her and repeating the lines that she's repeating and then she she storms out crying because it's all gone wrong and it was like why did liz suggest something so obvious as to make her friend her new friend such a very easy and apparent target and on the other side of that um in the paragraphs leading up to all the unicorns joining in for the line and the coonhounds bade and bade it reads as very positive. People were clapping along with the rhythm set by the poem. And so on the other side of that, you're like, well, if people are clapping along, why wouldn't they join in on a line that they know? You know, it's it's sort of like five gold rings. You know, everyone like runs in to join in. I mean, admittedly, it's not completely plausible. But if they were already clapping, it's hard to know the clapping is positive, but the joining in with the words is negative. I don't know. This book's just a piece of shit. I'm going to keep saying that. It's it's absolutely the worst of the three. It is. It's terribly written. I think that the clapping and the chanting in might have been read as positive, except that there is a bunch of unicorns laughing, which that's still probably a very small percentage of this crowd. But I think Jenny Lou is so primed to look at it as been picking on her. She's had such a shit experience. She didn't really want to be a part of this craft show at all. Uh, Elizabeth has been trying to talk her into it, and then after another fight with Ella, Jenny Lou finally decides to join and show her and win because she's going to beat Ellen. Uh, so, yeah, I could definitely see her just primed to take anything as another attack, because again, everyone, good guys, bad guys, Jenny Lou, everyone's written as just a complete binary stereotype of whatever the ghostwriter needed at that moment, and it's horrific. However, you should go look at the written recap, because there's an adorable picture of a coonhound in it, and it is lovely, they're such cute, fun, sweet dogs, so I'm just going to throw that out there, because this is my favorite part, the picture of the coonhound that I added to the recap. Thanks. Do coonhounds bay and bay? They do, actually, yes. Seriously? The best bit of my recap is the picture you added? Go bollocks. Yes. I think what Wing actually said was the best bit about the book was the picture she added to your recap. Okay, 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 yeah. This is true, that is what I was saying. But, you know, if you're going to take it as an insult, I'll run with that, too. (laughs) And dove bayed and bayed. 
And on that note, you will be glad to know that Wing and I have just swapped books in the future. So she gets the dog book and I get the parental abuse book because that's how we roll, which is really great for her, but really sad for me. (laughs) When you put it like that, it sounds just horrifying. (laughs) To be fair, you get all the adoption books and it really doesn't portray adoption particularly well. Whereas, yeah, whereas uh, I think... uh, Probably can't be all that bad, given that you think so highly of it. Taken out of context, that sounded really fucking sarcastic. I apologise. Absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> I kind of wasn't sure. Oh no, I wasn't being a dick. I was, I was uh, bad delivery, Dove. All right, let's get this over with. We're almost to the end. So Jenny runs off, and then what happens? Then the horse magically goes into labour, and of course the vet is unavailable, because reasons, nobody gives a shit. Reasons. Um, this leaves Ginny Lou, who is 12, and Ted, who we met in various other horse books, who is 14, to deliver the foal. And then... Um, or has it already arrived? This is how little I care. And anyway, at some point, uh, the foal is supposed to get up so that he can uh, nurse from Snow White. And he's not. And if he doesn't get up soon, he's going to die. And then there is the most ridiculous fucking page and a half ever. As Ellen rocks up, screams again for about 70 minutes because Ginny Lou is talking to her horse. So uh, the horse has literally given birth the foal is lying there and all ellen's doing is screaming and shrieking and being shrill and all those negative woman words um and then elizabeth has to reason with ellen to try and get ellen to allow Ginny lou to help the foal stand because otherwise he dies and then there is like a couple of pages wasted on Ellen deliberating over this, over whether she's going to let a brand new hour old foal die just to keep Ginny Lou away from her horse. And Ginny Lou is fucking standing next to her horse anyway. So for fuck's sake, it was just pointless bollocks and tension. And then all of a sudden, the minute that the horse, uh, the foal stands up and starts nursing, Ellen's like, ah, I'm kind of over my bit tree. Would you like to name him? Let's be BFFs. And um, Ginny Lou calls it sooner because he, what was it? He got here sooner rather than later. And now that he's here, he'd sooner stay. Fucking die. Absolute shit. Yeah, if I was Ellen, I'd be like, you know what? Fuck you. I'm going to call him Grumpy. Cunty McBollock. <laughs> wow. The same name, but his was R-rated. Mine was PG. <laughs> It's just a prime example of the differences between Dove and Raven and why, as soon as Raven joined us in recapping, suddenly a site was getting flagged for inappropriate material, which had never happened to us at the Point Horror site. Don't blame me, blame Mr. Nidek. Right, okay. Um, Are we officially bored of talking about Out of Place, especially since we've already done two podcasts on this theme already? So... If no one's got any objections, shall we move on to Claim of Fame, which also sucks, but sucks a little less. 
Yep, that's fine with me. Two yeah. things up front before he goes into it. Number one, uh, as I skim through the written one, I see that none of my comments actually saved, so that's interesting. Oh, no. I did have a computer crash shortly after I made my comments, and none of them were there. I definitely thought I'd hit save, so sorry about that. Okay. Number two, the book itself often uses the phrase wheelchair-bound, and we'll probably reference it as we do. We're going to drop a note in the show leaks from uh, someone who's actually in a wheelchair talking about why wheelchair bound is such a problematic phrase to use and how people in wheelchairs really hate it. Uh, but like I said, this is an older book. It does reference it a lot. There wasn't as much pushback when this book was written. But just to kind of let you guys know, as we live in modern day, here's some responses to that. So we'll drop a link in the show notes. OK, claim to fame. Yeah, this was a book. This was very meh, to be perfectly honest. I had quite high hopes for it because there was the time capsule idea, um, but that didn't really pan out for me. Um, as we've said, um, the school have decided to celebrate their 25th anniversary by burying a time capsule under their playing field that includes stuff from 25 years ago. Which, to be perfectly honest, is a massive misunderstanding of what a time capsule is supposed to be for. So that whole thing was very peculiar. I can just imagine future historians cracking open the, the time capsule thinking, so what, what was life like in the 80s? Oh, apparently it was full of the Beatles and bell-bottom trousers. And this is very confusing. So all, all it's going to do is to prove that Sweet Valley Middle are idiots. Hashtag Sweet Valley time. We all know that Sweet Valley is stuck in a time warp, so maybe their 80s were like the 60s, and um, that explains why their now is very much like the 80s. That's true. There was also the thing with the, the contest, when they, they decided to divide the whole school into groups of four again and say, right, okay, go off you, off you go, go and source stuff for our time capsule, pay for it yourself, find it yourself, we'll just stick it in a hole in the ground, whatever it is, that's great. When surely that, that a better way to do this was to, like, say to the students, could you all come up with stuff to put in the time capsule and we'll pick the best three? Because, okay, the the, 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 the Valpals, as I christened them, turn up with their three items for the for the thing, which were this, the award-winning football, which made everybody cry, which is just an X-Factor sob story at the end of the book. But the other two, what were the other two things that went in there? A textbook from the year it opened. The textbook and the, Jessica had the poster. Jessica had the Beatles record. Alice's first bottle of gin. Oh, a side picture. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, the side picture of Kennedy. Yeah. That was right. Now, it could very well be that they went, well, the football is really good. And that's what's won them this. But the textbook from the first year, meh. Whereas they could look at the Beatles record and say, oh, that would have been really good from that other team. So setting it up for the entire team to produce three things and those three things go in. It seemed a very, very odd way to run a contest to me. They should have just went, OK, students all come along with one thing and we'll pick the best three things to go in. Agreed. And there's always a bunch of people, maybe not in America, because America's very, very patriotic. And yay, whatever I'm attached to is awesome which is the exact opposite of how Brits work. But if, if that happened in England, that there'd be like three people who gave a shit and really worked their asses off. And everyone else would be like, oh, yeah, I forgot it. My dog ate it. Um, uh, I got this thing off eBay. It's from 82. Is, is that the 60s? You know, nobody would give a shit. So I'm assuming that America's the opposite, where 98% really work hard and 2% just go, you are. Yeah, so... 
it would have worked so much better so that, you know, anyone who didn't want to make an effort didn't really have to. They could just show up with one thing and then just put a picture of everybody in it because, yeah. you know. This is the school. Yeah, like just putting a picture of three thin white people is um, actually pretty very indicative of the 80s, come to think of it. But... Well, I would say it's very indicative of Sweet Valley, so that's yeah. completely what they all look like. But uh, a picture I, of a picture of one person with the caption, "This is our society." This is how we all look. Oh, I meant to tell you. Uh, you know, when you said that if a person of color actually moved to Sweet Valley, uh, you would burn everything. Um, I don't think you will. Just putting it out there. What I said was, I'm afraid. Oh no, 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 no I didn't. Oh, Jesus, that made you sound like a white supremacist. That wasn't what I meant. I meant <laughs> like if Sweet Valley treated a person of color as they, you know, wow, fuck, Jesus. I want to retract literally everything. I do remember that you said that there was a book later on where there, uh, maybe even in the next part of the Sweet Valley Twin series, like when they do Junior High or whatever the next is, that eventually they do start bringing in. Uh, characters of color and I am excited to see how that goes because you told me that it goes much better than I expect but yes way to make me sound like a complete white supremacist if they ruin Sweet Valley with the character of color I burn the world thanks thanks for that wow I am so sorry that is that is my worst ever misfire I'm, I'm almost sort of proud of how spectacularly bad that was but yes um yeah there will be various um characters of different ethnicities moving in and um this is actually dealt with in quite a positive way so apparently they only dislike white people who are different my hope is that they got some better ghostwriters at that point and that's what we can attribute it to but we'll see how it goes i guess go back to the uh the contest and the claim to fame and that nonsense it surprised me that lila and her team didn't win this contest because the way it was set up and the way that Lila actually did manage to, to get a few of the things that she just stolen from her dad. She went, right, I'll stick the Beatles record in. He won't even notice. I'll buy this poster. I'm surprised Lila, if she really wanted a picture to be in this capsule, didn't go, right then, what's the budget? Well, we've got five grand. I'll just throw money at this. I'm going to actually buy, um, oh, oh, what, Liz has got a picture of JFK. I'm going to buy one of his bones and we're going to stick that in there. You know, so she could have, she could have won up literally the entire the entire people, uh, everybody at the school would have just bowed down to her bringing in the actual Beatles to bury alive in the capsule or whatever. Yeah, I was just thinking, what if it went a bit purgy? Like, you know, she approaches George. Is it George? No, Howard's the dad, isn't it? Howard Henkel and sort of just goes, you don't seem to have any friends. Nobody gives a shit about you. How about I give your son 10 grand and you get in the fucking time capsule? <laughs> <laughs> well, damn, that escalated yeah, quickly. That's me. As we've now moved on to that subject, the the George plot, George and, and Howard, was quite heavy-handed, but it did come as a bit of a surprise to me, the the actual reasons for the estrangement, which was his father's anger at um, being injured in the Vietnam War and coming back to what you presume is a society that wasn't very... Um, that wasn't very responsive or receptive to the troubles that he might have been feeling and, 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 and so on. And when she, when Howard was telling Elizabeth this, it did all of a sudden come across as like platoon or something like that. All of a sudden the, the, the tone shifted, um, which was not bad, but it, it seemed out of place in what were the, the usual stuff that were, that we cover in these books. 
it was kind of a shock to see it in Sweet Valley and kind of a shock to see. So obviously the father-son reconciliation handled very ham-handed, very, you know, everything's wrapped up in an EPO. But his actual PTSD and the injury that's put him in a wheelchair and his response to it was super realistic, especially uh, in the 80s and 90s, because there was a huge problem when uh, soldiers came back from Vietnam. There was such an anti-Vietnam sentiment here that we shouldn't have been in the war, that even the soldiers coming back, even very wounded soldiers, were greeted with, outrage and anger instead of support and there is a terrible vet support system in the u.s as you can imagine since we have terrible everything else so yeah it's completely believable and true and powerful that he feels this way and has these issues that has never had any sort of help and that was such a surprise in a sweet valley it's such a tonal difference you're right from the rest of the book especially how it all wraps up at the end like it felt like a completely different story out of nowhere Mm, One thing that really annoyed me, though, while I agree with all the points about what actually happened, was the fact that Liz didn't know that until, like, the last few pages or whatever. And she was pushing, 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 like, oh, you're biologically related. You must be together because I'm with my bio parents and it's all wonderful because behold how fucking delightful we are. And she was just like oh but you're related you have to love each other you your lives will be better if you're together and for all she knew he could have beaten george to bits and wound up in that wheelchair by falling down the stairs drunk she literally doesn't know and she doesn't let it go george is clearly traumatized by this relationship and and that's fine in the story but if it had been because of physical abuse or emotional abuse or even sexual abuse. And Elizabeth is just like, oh, my God, you share genetics. You have to love each other. What an absolute fucking meddling twat ball she is. That is entirely correct. I I agree with that 100%. The reason I decided that that was sort of acceptable is because Liz wasn't being Elizabeth in this book at all. That was such a glaring error in the writing for me, that she was foisting George and her, his father to get back together when both of them clearly said, don't meddle, and also her father said, don't meddle, that I saw Liz was doing this and telling herself it was, oh, it's for the greater good of this family, when really she was pulling a Jessica and she just wanted that fucking football. I had a, There were lots of times in this book that I saw Liz just taking plays out of Jessica's playbook 100% and justifying them in whatever reason that she saw fit, which is 100% Jessica. And I'd like to think that was something that was planned by Jamie Suzanne, but I don't think it was. I, I would say not, because there is sort of like this ongoing joke, um, mostly with the Sweet Valley High ra- recappers, because I don't know many Sweet Valley Twins recappers, that... Whenever Liz finds a problem, she needs to go and shoulder pat, you know, like if she sees someone crying somewhere on campus, she's like, right, I'm going to solve the shit out of that. Shoulder patting gloves are on kind of thing. So, no, it, it it's not. A, I mean, I know you always want the Jamie Suzannes to be a lot cleverer and they're not, you know, they're just clumsy and awful and they don't think about what they're doing and they haven't thought about the underlying messages that they're putting out into the world, um, which is a shame, but, um, yeah. Well, we can read anything we want into these things, can't we? So I, I, I'm going to... In- 
I'm going to I'm going to keep clinging to the idea that these Jamie Susans are actually planting seeds of dissent in every single right. What's interesting to me about this aspect of Elizabeth that she is acting very much like Jessica is that Jessica is the one that actually gets in trouble for getting the football just because he thinks she's Liz instead of Jessica, which is understandable. People are supposed to mistake them all the time. It is also understandable that Elizabeth would be very angry that Jessica kind of swooped in and got the thing, but she's angry not because Jessica has gone in and, and taken something from her. She's angry that she didn't get this thing that she wanted when her whole focus has supposedly been on reuniting father and son, but it's clearly all she cares about is the football. So she's still very Jessica and Jessica gets in trouble for it. Mm, Yeah. I do think that it was strange to me that Jessica needed some sort of persuasion to go and spy on Liz and find out what was in her team's hall of tat for the um, contest simply because Lila was like you should really go and find this out unicorns would stop at nothing um, to to um, I don't know to profligate the unicorn dynasty or whatever <laughs> whatever the very Game of Thrones there I do apologize but the fact that she was like being told that the unicorns do this it's like yeah jessica wrote the book on how to be a, a fucking unicorn and she wrote it with a plum and verve and style and she writes it every time we see the good jessica that we all like or the, that i like is when she's coming up with the cool schemes and, and and doing all that and yeah the fact that she was being forced to do that to a certain extent while liz was being very like her it seemed very topsy-turvy to me I agree. It was weird. And also, pretty sure there's been at least some part of a book earlier where Jessica was certainly willing to spy on Elizabeth and find out information and stuff. So it's not outside of her wheelhouse to do exactly that. Elizabeth being reluctant would have made a lot more sense. I do seem to remember when they were both standing for student council or something, they were very much at each other's throats in that sort of scenario. So Jessica's reticence is something that's very out of place. To be fair, in those books, I mean, I I rarely want to be fair to Jessica because she's marvellous. But in those books, didn't one of the other unicorns do something that Liz then thought that Jessica did and then Jessica would retaliate hardcore? That's true. It was something like they didn't they throw all of their leaflets into the fountain or something like that. They did. And it was a unicorn thing. But Jessica was definitely pushing in to get answers and to find out what's happening and and low level stuff like it didn't escalate until Liz assumed it was her who threw her flyers in. But Jessica had shown no qualms of listening and overhearing and taking sort of information and making it work for her so i do think she wouldn't have physically escalated things she wouldn't have gone and stolen the football necessarily but she absolutely would have spied and tried to figure out what they had yeah agreed yeah i suppose we should also touch on the um the the poignant and beautiful reconciliation of george and howard near the end where howard dashes to the prize giving for the for the contest at the last moment in order to hand George the football and then takes the mic and delivers a well-rehearsed speech about how that the most important thing in his life is not this memory of how he used to be, but his very real and very alive son who's there that he needs to cling to. And I could just hear the X Factor music playing in the background. And I think Lila, or somebody of that ilk, who's obviously got no feelings and no soul because she's damaged inside irreparably by her father who's never there would have stood up and said this is just blatant vote pandering for the for the prize just give us this i've got a beatles record god damn it <laughs> this is emotional blackmail of the worst possible type and that i, I agree amazing. with that i'm so sad that, that didn't actually happen also i just want to point out 
Sweet Valley Middle School, you're awesome because you clearly have a wheelchair accessible football field because this is taking place in the middle of the football field. So all I can assume is there must be paving that leads onto there for him to rush up by himself uh, at the last minute to do this. Or yet again, Jamie Suzanne forgot one of the key characteristics of her um, important character. No, I think I, I've got to think about that. Maybe that's why they're digging up the football field. Because they went, yeah, well, we just had to sell the football field. Football field. For some reason, it's paved. <laughs> that can't work. Yeah, we need to take up all the paving stones. Oh, while we're down there, we'll bury a time capsule. Uh, I do think it's possible that there's pavement or at least solid ground, uh, like a track around it, something like that, that he could get to the field. Actually, onto the field, and that's more hit or miss. Nowadays, it would be turf, which could probably work through. But I back then it was probably just grass and not actually doable. Also, aren't they on a podium? So they have a ramp on the podium. So um, again, kudos, Sweet Valley, or the opposite of kudos, Jamie Suzanne. Maybe maybe they could have like put like planks down and stuff because they knew there was going to be a lot. Of, there's going to be chairs for the students and the bleachers, I presume. So maybe there was. That's true, and it's the 80s, so every woman would have been in stilettos because gender roles they could have done something to make it you know so so that the grass didn't get destroyed by all the all the students marching over the pitch at the same time i'm still calling bollocks but well they are digging it up so that's true yeah i think you're right i think you're right i do think he could have got to the field pretty believably here but onto the field itself eh, probably not also wouldn't they have already dug up some of it if they're going to put down the time capsule now yeah, you'd think it would all be prepped so that they could just go in and do a ceremonial shovel through, uh, shovelful, and then get Jose the gardener to uh, fill it in. Because Sweet Valley. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Anyway, yeah, it was bollocks. I think everything was bollocks. Well, actually, I like Left Behind, but I'm apparently very attached to that for reasons. I mean, this one's particularly bollocks because the whole premise is ridiculous. And you pointed this out at the beginning, but why the hell are they putting? something for 25 years ago in a time capsule that will be open to 25 years. That is such a shit idea all the way around that there's no way this book could have been good because the whole premise is terrible and wrong and completely misses the point of a time capsule. But it did get you to say bollocks. Say it again. Say it again. Bollocks. <laughs> Can I just say, um, I, I do agree with that. However, I didn't actually notice that until I was writing my recap. Which is really insulting because we had a conversation about it about a week before yeah. he did his recap. And I was very angry about this. And he just kind of yeah. went. And I just I just thought you were just just pissed off with the book in general. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I agree. It's awful. Yeah. Time capsules. Oof, yeah. Awful. Yeah. And then as I was written, hang on. This is bollocks on a number of levels. This is not just entry level bollocks. This is a cascading torrent of bollocks. Yeah, this is a PhD in bollocks. This is some active yes. extracurricular bollocks. This is this, this is, is a... bollocksing of a weekend and after school and maybe yeah. even before school in the mornings. This is a, a doctorate in bollocking. With a minor in what the fuck. Anyway, that was claim to fame. The only claim to fame it has is that it's shit. It can't even claim to be the shittest because Ithig and the class trip exist. No, the best thing I can say about this is... It was text. It didn't have the word ifig in it, so... Uh, it might have. Chumbawamba. Um, just explain that to anyone who doesn't know the band Chumbawamba. They got their name because of the saying that if you give a thousand monkeys a thousand typewriters, they will eventually type the works of Shakespeare. When in fact they didn't, 
the only readable word they came up with was Chumbawamba, and that's why the band is called that. When you say they didn't, it sounds like there's still a thousand monkeys and a thousand typewriters. But they did come up with Sweet Valley, so... Goatee monkeys! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Delightful. Yeah, they're, they're all called Jamie Suzanne, funnily enough. So yeah, terrible, terrible, terrible. Let's uh, do Bleak Valley. Jessica Wakefield doesn't exist. She's merely a construct in the mind of Elizabeth Wakefield, an abused only child trapped in the basement by unloving parents. Elizabeth Wakefield, whose imagination spawned the whole of Sweet Valley in an attempt to escape her lonely, imprisoned, apocalyptic clusterfuck life. The name for Elizabeth's altered reality? This desolate nightmare, the purple underbelly of a cracked psyche, the dark world of her mind and soul? Bleak Valley. Okay, so Bleak Valley. Um, Go. Well, Left Behind is kind of too easy. A girl left alone on her own, terrified. Hello, Elizabeth in Bleak Valley. Yeah, although maybe she's like, oh my god, how sad is this? Um, she is so unhappy in Bleak Valley with her new step-sibling, who we, whose gender we still haven't settled on entirely, have we? Or did we decide it was a boy? I think we decided it was a boy, but it's fluid, sir. So. Yeah, well, she is so unhappy with her gin-soaked parents and her horrible perfect step-sibling that her version of a fantasy is being left home alone and it's a heartbreaking i think mm, yeah i I don't think i can buy into that fully because if it was her fantasy to be left alone then surely sarah would have had a little more joy or a positive reaction at the beginning of it whereas literally from the word go she was like annie don't go I don't want to be left alone. True, true. Unless it's that thing of she wants to save someone who's in roughly the sit- the same situation as herself, but she doesn't want to get too close to her 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 actual narrative because it'll it'll make Sweet Valley bleed into Bleak Valley or vice versa, and the fantasy won't be as fresh and pristine. So instead of having gin-soaked parents, she's just home alone and she has no brothers and sisters and she needs to be rescued. And she's actually doing like her Sweet Valley character, Elizabeth, is going to be the one who helps her. Although, admittedly, Elizabeth doesn't do much except for show kindness, which is like, oh, why don't we come over to my house? And, oh, do you want to come roller skating with us and things like that? But... Another way to look at it is, if you take Elizabeth in Bleak Valley's fantasy as being not left alone, but being rescued without having to draw attention to herself, because that's what happens to Sarah. She doesn't say anything. She doesn't say anything. And we have touched on the fact that we think it's unbelievable that 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 should happen. But the fact is, she does go through the entire 
book without saying anything to anyone. And the only time that she does unburden herself is when she wakes up in hospital. So if we take it that the bleak valley Elizabeth has been told by her parents to shut up and never say anything to anyone, if any, it'd be quiet when anyone comes to the house, otherwise you're going to get another beating, for example, then her fantasy is actually to get out of this situation but doing so in a way where she won't get into trouble. That makes a lot of sense, especially because Sarah is rescued after she has been pretty badly injured, Mm. but without having to say anything about it. So that would bleak Bally Elizabeth would love that idea because she's hurt, at least in some theories of bleak Valley, she's hurt all the time. So of course it would make sense that she would want to be rescued from this pain without having to, put herself in a position to get beaten even worse. Yep, I agree with that. What about the character of Annie? Where do you think she fits into the Bleak Valley picture? Well, if we go with that there's a new step-sibling around, Annie is kind of this new presence that's disrupting Sweet Valley, Sarah's life. So Bleak Valley, Elizabeth could be projecting that, like someone new comes in and makes everything even worse. She'd hope that it would make things better. It didn't happen. Now it's even worse. But because she's so desperate for caring parents, obviously the way that Sweet Valley Annie would ruin things is by taking away that one thing that she really wants. That's true. And this whole series has a biology matter slant, like step-parents are inferior to real biological parents. Yeah, and with the whole Mary adoption uh, storyline, it's been very pro. My birth mother is going to find me because blood is greater than love and so casting Annie as the wicked stepmother was just playing into that trope brilliantly and come to think of it if she's you know she maybe she has got her hands on fairy tales which are very heavy on the step parents suck biology is great kind of narrative it would explain the entire series's bias in that direction yeah Annie could also be another level of bleak regarding like a, a, a stepmother being someone who might come and save her in the her own parents which we are assuming in bleak valley are, are her biological parents who are abusing her are not there not there for her not there to help her but maybe she's so downtrodden even a character of a step parent coming in that all she can see is another abusive figure rather than a possible way out Another thing with this obsession with biology being better and biological parents always saving in Sweet Valley could be this hope that surely uh, Ned and Alice in Bleak Valley can't actually be her parents because her biological parents would never treat her as such. She's been stolen away or there was some sort of mistake. And any day now, her actual biological real, scare quotes, parents will show up and rescue her because there is that idea that they appear and make everything better in Sweet Valley. So it's possible that's a hope that she has because it's pretty standard for little kids to even wonder, even in good situations, oh, hey, I wonder if I'm adopted. Uh, at some point in their lives. So for her to have that kind of dream that there's real parents out there somewhere to come get her would make sense to you. I absolutely buy into that. And having read significantly further ahead, there are plenty of books that back up that real parent coming to save you theory. So, yeah, good call. Yeah, good job. Out of place, I don't know what to think, though, other than, yet again, outsiders. Um, Why are they so bloody obsessed with it? Yeah, it's a tough one. Unless... 
Elizabeth herself is feeling like the outsider, like the new step sibling is fitting in just fine and they're not getting whacked as much as she is and things like that. And so Elizabeth feels like this horrible outsider that everyone's constantly picking on. And I suspect there is just some low level bitchery going on, you know, the kind of shit that the unicorns pull all of the time. And so she's just going to inflict it on this new character, Ginny Lou. Possibly she saw Toy Story 2 on, on like, or or an advert for it. I don't suspect she's ever been allowed to sit through an entire Disney film. Um, and, you know, she projected all of that onto her. And then Sweet Valley Elizabeth is going to save her by being awesome. And even Jessica gets in on the act. I mean, uh, we didn't cover it much, but there was a shit little B-plot where Jessica needs money. And she realizes that Ginny Lou's dolls can be sold for money. And yay, money, make it rain. So even Jessica, admittedly, utterly driven by money, sort of says that she's going to make Ellen be nice to her. So, yeah, possibly the fact that even both twins are making an effort to save this girl probably represents how miserable Bleak Valley Elizabeth is. The stereotypes in Out of Place work, too, in that situation, or in just the Bleak Valley aspect, because it does seem like it's just pieces of things that Elizabeth might have overheard on the TV upstairs, or seen in some sort of book or magazine that they let her have, because I do think sometimes she gets something to read, and then she just extrapolates from that to create these characters, and if you look at it, too, as kind of this one-off adventure where she keeps finding ways to tell the same story over and over, because there's only so many types of stories she knows, this is just another little escape for her it maybe doesn't fit into the big rescue plot, but it's uh, a thing to keep her distracted from whatever horrible things happening at the moment. And all she has to draw from are the stereotypes that does make some sense to it. Also, there's a solid chance that Bleak Valley, Alice and Ned aren't the most enlightened human beings on the planet, which is why there are all these unfortunate implications with anyone who is not white and Sweet Valley born and bred like because Sophia is very much coded as as a person of colour. Um, you know, Ginny Lou is just made up of stereotypes. And, you know, these things are just things that she could have picked up from not particularly enlightened parents. But with with that child's innocence of, oh, this is what I know about this. My mum told me it must be true. To be honest, I think Sweet Valley, Dad and Alice, are the most enlightened in that way. True. Uh, Sometimes they push back against their kids' horrific behavior, but usually they don't. And I do think the sort of snobbery that you see in Out of Place, where it's, oh, you know, people from the South or people from the mountains or just these terrible, dumb hillbillies that have no mirrors and no TV and all of that. That's absolutely the kind of thing that a West Coast affluent parent would kind of have those ideas. So, yeah, I think Sweet Valley or Bleak Valley, that makes a lot of sense. There's also a little thing I thought of. Maybe... Sweet Valley Elizabeth has actually made herself a little doll out of a couple of twigs or something like that. That's actually in the um, that's actually in the cupboard or, or cellar, wherever she is, and that's one of her friends. And she sees that as a way to get out, if you like, or at least mentally get out of her problem. So maybe the step sibling or the parents have found that doll and broken it with a fit of pique, you know, snap your doll, haha, and that is her at the craft fair trying to show these things that she's done and her her lighter her nice side but just being destroyed by the pettiness of other people 
you say that's a little thing, but that's probably the most heartbreaking thing one of us has said so far in this episode of Leap Valley. That's just terrible and perfect. Yeah. I mean, whenever we record these things, quite often when Raven comes up with a theory for uh, Bleak Valley, Wing and I make a face that could easily be, be described as, oh, that's how that face sounds. It nice. does. And we even clutch at our chest every time, too. So, yeah, it's very, very true. Pretty often we talk about things and then Raven comes in with the mic drop of a horrible thing and we're just left sitting there going, oh, my God, poor Bleak Valley Elizabeth. I don't know what, what that actually says about my mind, but... <laughs> <laughs> so what about claim to fame? Where does where does that fit in with this, this bleak theory? I mean, first of all, at least with it being poor Elizabeth who never gets out of the cupboard, at least that explains why she's got such a cataclysmically wrong idea about how a time capsule works, so... There is that. The only real thing that I thought about this, I've not really given much thought to the George and Howard father-son relationship, although I'm sure we can mine that in our discussion. But I did think that the whole thing about being immortalised in the time capsule is a very odd thing to, to think about, really. So, being bleak, I was thinking maybe Elizabeth has been threatened by the, the parents, and if you're not quiet or you don't be good, you're going to be buried under the patio or something like that. And the only thing that she's taking solace from that is that, well, at least when they dig me up, they'll know my story. Holy shit, that's really dark and perfect. Yeah. That's great. Okay, so we've never made this face before, because we quite often make the aww face, but both of us made a face that was like, no, 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 don't do that. that, that leave her alone. That's <laughs> No! panic really yeah. we're very attached to bleak valley elizabeth as much as we hate sweet valley elizabeth which i think says a lot about us too dove i will say that <laughs> and the fact that all three of us are child free but we're sort of regarding this as we would totally raise her between the three of us we the only child we would well all i will say is although we can be bleak i think we've got license to be as bleak as we possibly can because we've still got a hundred or more books to read so we know that she she lives for a very long time at least you know what we've got another 13 years of this <laughs> that is the bleakest thing either of you has ever said you'll never leave clearly i do think uh bleak valley side that the father and son reconnecting here is just again a sign of the blood family the birth family showing up to save them uh to save the day to bring the prize whatever it is that he's saving the day here just another way that bleak valley elizabeth is hoping to be rescued uh sometimes it's a much more blatant sort of rescue where she's actually rescued from being hurt like in left behind but sometimes it's just that whenever the birth family shows up things are better and here's just another example of that uh, as well as that, we can also say something like the fact that Howard has a face turn, if you like, at the end and says there are more important things than things in my life. My son is more important than this football. Maybe Elizabeth in Bleak Valley was doing a chore and broke something by accident and got a proper reaming by the parents for that. And this is her just trying to convince herself that, no, they do care for me more than they do care for the plate that I broke while I was doing the dishes or something like that. Oh, I think that's a good idea. 
That's really depressing. And yet not the most depressing thing out of this Bleak Valley, so at least we're not ending Bleak Valley on the most depressing part. Yeah, I mean, I think um, next month's going to be more wacky fun. I think so, I think so. Because all three of us have got a fun book. There may be sort of like things that we don't like about it, but it. I think next month's going to be a fun run, so... Well, hopefully not quite so depressing. God, I hope so. Uh, so we have decided to stop ending each episode with Bleak Valley because that was really depressing every time. Yes. So we bumped the favorite and least favorite books to the end. So what do you think, Graven? Favorite, least favorite? My favorite book this, this month was definitely Left Behind. I think overall the three of them weren't great. So of the three, I did like that, mainly because of the, the Sarah and her reactions to what was going on. I found them very believable and quite heartbreaking. As you you guys make the the Bleak Valley face, I was doing the same thing reading that book. So that's a good sign to me. Um, the the writer did hit on something there. Yeah, that was my favourite. My worst, the worst one had to be bloody Jilly Lou Culpepper and the stupid baying coonhounds. That it just rubbed me up the wrong way from the beginning till the end. I'm actually exactly the same as Raven for exactly the same reasons. I like Left Behind. Obviously, I'm, a, I'm attached to it for personal reasons. And Out of Place... Uh, I'm just so sick of this story. I'm sick of new girls flocking to the school and being bullied to the point of suicide. And, like, why don't we just kill the unicorns? Like, just kill these bitches and stomp out bullying. Um, that's a good good thing to do, isn't it? Combat, like terror with terror that's um that's how america works right clearly that worked well don't be a murderer (laughs) oh i do love my country those bitches are not safe on purge night so my two obviously favorite was left behind i did have some concerns and the b plot was super boring but yeah the a plot was generally great and touching and heartbreaking and just wonderful i think i might be an odd one out here. I think Claim to Fame may have edged over out of place for my most hated one because damn time capsule <laughs> failure. Just the failure to even comprehend what the hell a time capsule is is probably my baying hounds. <laughs> so I just could not get past that. Though obviously I raged toward out of place because of the stereotypical writing and the flyover country aspect and the southerner stupidity and just on and on and on. But yeah, the time capsule thing is the thing that I cannot get past. So I think Claim to Fame is my least favorite. Yeah, I think the takeaway from all of us was it was not a stellar month. Mm-mm. It was rough. Rough month. <laughs> I'm sure I read um, a good time capsule story online, which is that a guy went to school in a certain year and they did um, plant a time capsule and so did their rival school. And around the same time, the initial letters from their school logo that was like wall mounted went missing. Anyway, this guy goes through school, goes through college, comes back and becomes a teacher there at the rival school. And when they opened their time capsule, it was containing the initial letters from the rival school. And I was like, now that's how you do a time capsule. That is pretty fun. Uh, There's actually an episode of the TV show, I think it's Bones. It's either Bones or Criminal Minds, but I think it's Bones, that also has a time capsule in it and has a body in it to go back to you guys wanting to bury a body in this time capsule. Did they bury the mascot from the the rival school? Is that what it was? Um, Alas, no, it wasn't a mascot. But it's dressed as a beaver. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that would be great. Uh, yeah, so there's a body in a time capsule episode that was pretty fun to watch. 
I do think that's a story that doesn't get told very often, is that the time capsule is dug up by someone who's not supposed to. I mean, it's not generally buried someplace that is hard to get to, and someone could sneak in in the middle of the night and unbury it, yet that's not a story you ever hear. So, yeah, I like that. Topically, that was actually on the news, literally last week, that a time capsule from some other school was accidentally dug up by some people doing work. That's wild. It should have been there for another 15 years or something. Well, there. Awesome. So apparently time capsules very relevant still. And yet we all know how to do them, unlike <laughs> Sweet Valley. Yep. Yep. So that wraps up this month's episode. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next month. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this month's episode of Sweet Valley Online. You can find all our recaps and previous podcast episodes on our website at sweetvalley.online. Come talk to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash sweetvalleyonline and on Tumblr at sweetvalleyonline.tumblr.com. Thanks again to Stuart Taylor of Legacy Breakfast for our music. We'd love it if you subscribe, rate, and review us at your favorite podcast provider. Thanks again for listening.